Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch, and a Hanukkah Sameach to you. Thank you. Happy Hanukkah, however you choose to pronounce it. I did see advertised that you were speaking about where the menorah of the Beis HaMikdash is being kept now. Yes. I didn't, guilty as charged, get to listen to it, so can I just have the sneak peek? Well, you're still in advance of the tear away one, which is happening on Friday, so around Friday midday, you should be able to download it and listen to it at at least one and a half times speed. That's what I do to most of the talks that I listen yeah, to. Yeah, so if I, if I don't get to mm. hear it then, can we have just a sneak answer as to where the menorah is hidden? Yeah, I picked it up on one of my tours of Europe. And, and it's currently in your dining room. <laughs> no, it's in a shed. I'm just waiting for a good offer. <laughs> yeah, oh well. Right, welcome back to a new series that we're starting today. You said that this is going to be a three-part series, and the subject is time, which is quite general. That could pretty much be on anything. Yes, I guess. Time is, well, I mean, it's obviously the major factor of history in general, but in Judaism, uh, we regulate our day by time, actually to the minute, if you think about uh, Shabbos or many other mitzvahs. Um, But in fact, time occupies much more focus than does space, which is very different to Christianity. But I'm focusing on time as it relates to timelines, to records, to calendars, and this week dealing with an almost magical account that we have from Jewish travelers more than a thousand years ago. So that's a lot earlier than anything we've done in the series thus far. Both this week and next, in fact, because we are going back to the um, 8th and 9th century. The earliest recorded international traveller who made his way across countries, sort of a globetrotter, is at the very beginning of the 9th century, the year 802, to be precise. We don't know many details about his life, We know the outcome of a particular journey. He's actually not the main focus of today, but uh, it's worth mentioning him just because of how many worlds come together through his input. In the 8th century, so the French Emperor Charlemagne united most of Western and Central Europe under his rule. In fact, he was the first emperor in 300 years. Rome fell in 476 and since then no one had really controlled Europe. It was during his lifetime, and possibly it was him personally, who called for the migration of Jews to northern France and Germany to create what became Ashkenaz. And Charlemagne had this Jew called Isaac, um, who's also referred to by his Latin name, Isaac Judeus, as part of Charlemagne's diplomatic court. And he was also a community leader for the early French Kehillah. 
He was born in Narbonne in France, and he became a successful merchant, a prominently successful merchant, to the extent that he comes to the attention of the emperor and is first employed by Charlemagne to go to Eretisrael and bring back particular merchandise, which he does successfully. And this brings the two of them closer together. And then in 797 CE, Charlemagne comes up with a very forward-thinking idea, quite a daring idea, to create a business relationship with the Muslim empire, which was unheard of. The idea of Christians and Muslims uniting in, in any way. Jews, of course, were in both empires at the time involved in trade, but not across the borders in most cases. So these two leaders on the Christian side, Charlemagne, on the Muslim side, Harun al-Rashid, were unusual for their times. The Muslim ruler built up Baghdad. And in fact, many of the, of the stories of the famous Arabian Nights are attributed, or let's say legends, about him. So this Isaac, along with two other non-Jewish diplomats, a guy called L'Enfroi and Sigismund, are sent on this mission to go to the Muslim world, which worked out very successfully. And the caliph even um, donated or presented uh, this Jew Isaac with a number of gifts to be given to Charlemagne, one of which was an elephant called Abul Abbas. No doubt the ancestor of the one we know today. Quite possibly, yes. But the interesting thing is that of the three who traveled out, Isaac was the only one who survived the journey. So he travels back from the Middle East alone and brought the elephant through Egypt, Tunisia. He sails from Karawan to Europe and he ends up in Genoa in Italy in October 801. He had to wait out the winter and then in the spring they climb the Alps with this elephant to arrive in the emperor's residence in Aix-la-Chapelle, which is Aachen nowadays, what's well, nowadays the Belgian, Dutch and German border. And he arrives there in July 802, four years after he'd set out on this journey. And Charlemagne's secretary and biographer records that on the 20th of July, Isaac the Jew brought the emperor the elephant and other presents which the king of the Persians had sent. So you're saying the elephant called Abbas followed him on this four-year journey? Uh, well, it's probably a couple of years to get there, but the, the couple of years to come back, yes. And he's eventually housed in Bavaria, this <laughs> elephant, and there are you know, accounts about it, so we know this happened. <laughs> so you're saying that a Jew is the first link between the two major centres of the known world at the time? Yes, this 8th century Jew called Isaac is the first one from a diplomatic perspective link these two empires together. Uh, but it's a 9th century traveller who continues to this day to fascinate scholars and storytellers alike. And his account is almost one of alternative times, like, like a, a time warp. His name was Eldad Hadani, and he travelled to a number of Jewish centres, both in the 
Middle East and North Africa, in fact, even traveled to Spain, in the year 882. He said that he was from Eastern Africa, where Jews had their own independent state, which was inhabited by the tribes, the biblical tribes of Don, Asher, Gad, and Naphtali. And he was Eldad Haddani because that's the tribe he came from, the tribe of Don. And he names other tribes of the lost ten Shvatim, which we'll come to in a moment. And as you can imagine, this causes quite a stir. And he also quotes various halachas which were not the same as practiced by the Jews whom he was now visiting. What do you mean? What sort of halachas were different? So not in the main concept. In other words, Shabbos, Kashrus, etc. were all identical. It's more in the detail, particularly regarding Shechita. And it's interesting to note that he is quoted by some of the major Rishonim. Rashi quotes him, Tosfos quotes him in later halacha. He's not written off as some sort of nutter. <laughs> but what needs to be determined is what of his account is true, what was his motivation, and also the impact that he had on the Jewish world, and perhaps even more wider afield, uh, both then and subsequently. And interestingly, there's not a lot of research that has been done, although I guess there isn't much to work with outside of a few documents, many of which are in the Geniza, and which were written at least a couple of hundred years after the events. So you're saying that that it's the lost ten tribes. You mean going all the way back to the first base of Mikdash? Yes, more than two and a half thousand years ago, the ten tribes were exiled at least 130 years before the first temple was destroyed and the other two tribes taken into exile, these ten tribes had already split from the two, from Yehuda and Binyamin, shortly after the beginning of the first Besamekdush, during the, the reign of the son of King Solomon of Shlomo Melech, uh, it's, uh, you know, close on 3,000 years ago, they were already split into two distinct entities. And each of those two will have their own king. There will be Nevi'im prophets unique to each of uh, either the ten tribes or the two. They will each have a capital city, a, a place of worship, because obviously the ten tribes did not come to the base of Migdash, although they are very much within Eretz Yisrael. And they stay apart for 300 years. Most of what you would learn in Malachim, Aleph, and Base is uh, this period. And they would be taken into exile, um, as I mentioned, more than a century before the base of was destroyed, but not to Babylonia, but to Assyria through Sancherev. And at that stage, both historical record and... Hashkafa becomes vague. What happens next? Do they still exist? Now, it's clear that we're not talking about a literal disappearance of every single member of every one of those 10 tribes. There are uh, sort of almost fragments of each tribe. The Bnei Sascha writes that he was told by the Chayz of Lublin that he's a descendant 
partly of Shevet Yisachar, hence his name and hence the, the length which he devotes to Hanukkah in his Svarim. But the question is, where are they? Do they return? How do they come back? These questions created legends which came into existence because of the mystery and because of the eschatological implications. In other words, what it means in terms of the end of time, what will happen at the very end of time, which is associated potentially with their return. Now, it might seem odd to us that thousands of Jews should disappear, but clearly it happened. And therefore, any claim about the lost ten tribes, as they came to be known, all these claims are unusual, almost by definition, and, and many... Don't, don't they keep popping up in the, in the news in Africa and Argentina? So, yeah, so there are many nations around the globe that have laid claim to be descendants of the ten tribes. Um, uh, Afghanistan, Nigeria, India, Japan, uh, Ethiopia, uh, New Zealand, the American Indians in the USA, even the UK. And even though a number of these claims were made in the 19th century, it was difficult to assess. And if it was difficult in the 19th century, then how much more so in the 9th century when this Eldad Hadani makes the claim? If he came from Eastern Africa, why couldn't they just retrace his steps? He was one of the first to have said this claim. So there is a much longer narrative associated with it. He told the following story that when he left his country, he traveled with another individual from the tribe of Asher, and there was a storm, and it destroyed their boat. But as he put it, Hashem prepared a plank for him and his companion on which they floated until they were thrown ashore to an Ethiopian tribe. So not walking on water, but but close. This is not unheard of, so it's definitely within the realms of possibility. The problem was that this Ethiopian tribe were cannibals. Once again, not unheard of back in the day. And the guy who was with him from Usher, who was fat, was immediately eaten. While Eldad, they placed in a pit in order to fatten him up. And then, it gets better, a fire-worshipping tribe attacked the cannibals and he was taken prisoner. And he remains in captivity for four years. And they bring him to a province called Azanian, something like that, where he is ransomed by a Jewish merchant. And he then continues his journey and he comes to the tribe of Yisachar, who are in the mountains near Persia. And they are devoted to the study of Torah. Their only uh, weapon is a knife for Shechita. And they still carry out the four types of capital punishment, then he talks about the tribe of Zvulun, who live beyond the province of Armenia to the river Euphrates. And then outside of the mountains of Paran are the tribe of Ruven. And then you have Ephraim and half of Manasseh living in the southern mountains of Arabia, and the tribe of Shimon and the other half of Manasseh are in the land of the Khazars, and that there many Muslims are subject to them. And finally, on the other side of the river Kush are the Bnei Moshe, the tribe of Levi, and the river Sambation 
encircles their land and it rolls sand and stone during the six days of the week and it rests on Shabbos and in, in Hebrew the rendition is these, these avonim, these stones create an enormous sound and then Uba Shabbos, there's a change on Shabbos itself, Ad Shabbos and Vakurna is a Nahar Sanbation. He describes this story and the various parts of the ten tribes that he becomes aware of. Wow. So you said that Manasseh split into two, just like the biblical Manasseh. Yeah. And therefore, at a certain stage, we have to wonder whether he's borrowing from Chumash, indeed, as you pointed out. Where did his imagination possibly get the better of him in terms of the story? But it is clear that he came from a place which was unknown to the centers of Jewish life that he visited. And he goes on to say that they have Chumash and Nach and Mishnah and Talmud and Medrash. Of course, we'll come back to that because, of course, Talmud and Mishnah were written long after the Ten Tribes split. So he does say that they don't have Megillus Esther or Echa because they were written after the time that the Ten Tribes were taken into exile. Echa is at the time of the two tribes, 130 years later, and Esther is between the first and second temple. They're both, so to speak, post-exile. And he says that their Talmud is in pure Hebrew, not Aramaic, because it would have nothing to do with Bavel, with Babylonia. It would have preceded it. And it does not have the name, obviously, of any of the teachers of the Tanoim. Instead, it is all handed down from generation to generation in the name of Yeshua, who had received it from Moshe, who had heard it from Hashem. Once again, this is not completely impossible to believe because there, obviously, all the way through the generations, was an accompanying oral law. There must have been. We, we know this as an absolute. So, you know, the fact that he's saying that this was given from generation to generation is potentially very possible. And he says that they speak only Hebrew, and he himself said he did not understand Ethiopic or Arabic. And the inhabitants of Karawan were troubled by some of the strange Hebrew expressions that he used. I'll, I'll quote a, a translation. He employs Hebrew expressions which we have never heard. For instance, he calls a pigeon tintara, a bird rikus, pepper darmush, and we show him the objects. He gives the names which we write down, and after some time we repeat the same questions, and he gives the same words as before. So there were some things unusual, but he obviously knew halacha. He is not ignorant. And therefore this story, I mean, his part of the story in terms of his interaction with these Jews definitely happened, but the story in general is a bit of a mystery. Now, the most authentic account of Eldad is the letter from Kairouan, which they sent to the Gon Tzemach Ben Chaim in Sura, in Babylonia, in the late uh, 9th century. They asked him his opinion. And he is not bothered by the fact that some people who possibly are the four tribes disagree with the Talmud on some halachic points. 
And he knew of Eldad through two people that he names, a guy called Isaac bin Mar and Rav Simcha. So he concludes that there's no reason to reject what Eldad says out of hand, despite some of it being a little strange or quite strange. And what he says is each of the statements need to be examined on its own merits. Now, obviously, as you can imagine, these accounts spread around the Jewish world. And as usual, in such cases, they were sort of remoulded, amplified by copyists, by by people writing this up. And there are, in fact, no less than eight versions with variations, although in the main, the essence of the narrative remains. And here's where it gets even stranger, because now the Christians get in on the act as well. It didn't sit well with them that the Jews had these tribes who were eventually going to return to Eretz Israel, because that would imply that the Jews were going to win at the end of time, that the Christian second coming is now challenged by the idea of Jewish monarchy sovereignty. And the Christians now create an apocryphal letter of Prester John, which appears in the 12th century, in which the Christian writer tells of a priest who rules over the great kingdom of Ethiopia, to which these Jewish tribes, including the Bnei Moshe, who dwell beyond the river Sambatian, are subject. In other words, the Christians are saying, yeah, yeah, we know all about these 10 tribes, but actually we control them too, yeah. which is you know, amazing what lengths people will go to. And this Prester John appears in, in chronicles and traditions as an ally against the Muslims during the period of the Crusades, which is the very end of the 11th century to the 13th century, when European Christians hope to regain the Holy Land from the Muslims. And he's, no, he's, he's reigning somewhere, somewhere in the Far East beyond Persia. And the overall result of both Eldadani's story and the Christian sort of rebuttal is that there are myths that now arise, which include the possibility that hordes of Jews are waiting to attack uh, innocent Christians, a, a Jewish warrior race, which is very negative and very paranoid. And therefore that this story grips the imagination of Jew and non-Jew alike during the Middle Ages, but for very different reasons. Now, the earliest record that we have is a Geniza fragment in an Oriental script, Times of the Rishonim. The halachic part of the fragment from Eldad's laws that he taught or that he spoke of prove that the text has been changed from Eldad's original, definitely in, in style. And a number of additions have been added from various sources, notably the Tur, which is 14th century. And therefore, we can presume that the non-halachic part of the Geniza fragment has also undergone changes, which means he might not have said as much as it is ascribed to him because of changes over the centuries. But unquestionably, he spoke of some of the lost tribes. Is there one version of this whole story that's more accurate or accepted than the others? Because there seems to be no. it's almost fictional at this point. In other words, all of them deal with the concept of the fact that he talks about these tribes. There's a question, did he make it all the way to China? It's more his wanderings and things like that that are subject to question. But the essence of the story that the ten tribes live on and are unknown and practice Judaism, that comes across from, from all the versions. 
And then there's an even stranger argument, one that comes from an academic perspective, and that is perhaps he was a Karite and that his purpose was to undermine the Talmud. And modern historians are divided in their opinions, modern, they say, 19th and 20th century. Some say that he's a Karite missionary and his purpose was to discredit the Talmud by saying that the four tribes didn't know the names of the sages of the Tanoim and Amorim. And this was a period where the Karaites were on the rise at the end of the ninth century. And then there are others say, no, the exact opposite. His halachas contain rules about Shechita, which are not accepted by the Karaites. So as a modern historian yourself, what's the conclusion? We've just got so little to work off. I mean, it's unlikely he was a, a Karaite. I would say that the basic conclusion is that his story is somewhat of almost a historical novel. So there's truth and imagination. He may have come from East Africa or maybe he came from Yemen. In both cases, it's possible, therefore, that the Jews there only spoke Hebrew. He couldn't have been a native of Abyssinia, uh, where the Falashas hail from, because only Gez is spoken and no trace of this appears in his Hebrew. But there are traces of Arabic, even though he said he didn't speak Arabic. Um, so we're not sure who he is, where he was from, which part of the stories are true. But he had an effect on thousands of people and has been quoted over the centuries. And some of it is almost certainly true. It's just impossible to know exactly. You know, his travels were printed in various versions in, in Italy in 1418, Constantinople in 1516, uh, there was a Yiddish version in 1769, it was translated into Latin, into Arabic, you know, it made its rounds. It's a fascinating tale. You haven't spoken much about his halachic rulings, more about the story. Right, so the specific halachas which are written in Hebrew deal with shechita and the subsequent examination of the animals post shechita. For the most part, his statements are rejected as being normative halacha, but sometimes, in some cases, accepted as a chumrah, as a stringency. The first toisvus in the third chapter of Zvochim, in, in Perik Gimel of Zvochim, quotes him and says, we don't accept this. Although in that particular case, the Ramah does go on to quote it as a stringency. You have the Rosh bringing one of his halachas and saying, Kosav Midato, he made up this stringency regarding the ruling that if a person carries out shechita without making a bracha over the shechita, that the shechita is invalid and therefore the animal can't be eaten, which actually has its source in if a person shechts to an idol, to Avodazara, where even if a person does this as a misasek, even if they do so without really realizing what they're doing, this animal becomes prohibited. So the accepted halacha is, is that somebody who shechts and doesn't make a bracha, the animal is kosher. But the taz in Yeridea quotes the Bach, that if a person did so deliberately, didn't just forget to make the bracha, deliberately didn't make the bracha, then he is not allowed to eat this meat. And interestingly, in that Tesis in Zvachim, Tesis uses the abbreviation Aleph Yud when he's referring to the Sefer, the book of Eldad, which most people assume means the halachas of Eretz Yisrael, Aleph Yud. That's generally the, the meaning of that abbreviation. 
except all these halachas deal with shechita, because Aleph Yud actually means Omar Yehoshua, as in the pupil of Moshe, from whom he says all these laws were passed down, not what we would normally assume is the abbreviation. Rashi in Mishle quotes an explanation in the name of Ramesha Darshan, who bases it on an expression used by El Dad. So there's, you've got uh, grammar from him. And in Halacha, Rashi in Sefer Pardes explains that a delay in Shechita, what's called Shehia, invalidates the animal and gives a reason that is quoted from him about Havlas Dam, the, the, the blood being absorbed. Um, the Rivad, Rivad 2 this is, they're three altogether, uh, the author of the Eshkel cites some halachas of Eldad, but he disagrees except in one case. And Rabavron ben Arambam mentions Eldad's count in one of his responsa as proof that the ten tribes are still around. But there were those who expressed complete doubt as to any halachic source for Eldad, the Evan Ezra, and the Maharam Meir Rothenberg, the Mayor of Rothenberg, and he writes in one of his uh, responsa, She'ein lismoich olov befrat b'inyone halacha. You cannot rely on him for anything halachic. So, um, wow. So, so I guess the listeners will draw their own conclusions. Yes. I mean, it's interesting because we can't in any way find out much more. Maybe we'll come across another Geniza which will shed more light. And um, we can't refute it entirely, of course. Yeah. And as I say, it is quoted in a number of mainstream halachic sources. So they didn't dismiss it out of hand. And what happened to all of them today? The 10 tribes? The lost tribes, where yeah, are that, they? That's part of the question. <laughs> this, the Gomorrah itself is not uh, resolved on the issue. So, yes. Thank you very much. That brings our first episode on our new time series to an end. Um, you did want to mention yes, yeah, something yeah. about the Dreyfus. Uh, yes, you had yes. Some... I, I had said we'd come back to a response to Dreyfus at various emails. So the basic question, which came across in a number of different ways, is can we really say that the Dreyfus trial and the subsequent outcome, the next 10 years, was anti-Semitic if it was really a war between the sort of the nationalists and the army on one hand and, and the intellectuals, which is a good point. But firstly, we have to remember that the sort of the cry, death to the Jews, accompanies the whole saga. From the moment he's dishonoured in the École Militaire through all the way to his second trial, the focus is on the Jews and their riots against Jews. Secondly, the French passed a law in 1881 that allowed freedom of the press and extended it to even sort of insightful cartoons, virulent cartoons, and there were, I think, 51 made of Dreyfus and his supporters, each with a different animal or sort of, you know, lizard, vermin. This law was eventually repealed in 1900, but for, for weeks on end, they would be pilloried, these Jews, the, the supporters of Dreyfus. And then you find something 100 years later. There was a statue created in 1986 honouring Dreyfus, which was gathering dust. It should have been easy to set it up in Paris, but it proved very much otherwise. When the sculptor tried to put his statue in the École Militaire, which is where he was stripped of his rank, the Ministry of Defence objected. When they tried to locate it in front of the École Polytechnique, where he received his military training, the school refused. 
they tried putting it opposite the Palais de Justice, where the French Court of Appeal overturned Dreyfus's court-martial. And the government of, at the time it was Jacques Chirac, uh, hesitated. So Quite understandable why they wouldn't want the mark of everything that they did wrong at that time outside their door. Yes, although by then they had come, you know, full circle, mea culpa, and they had said it was a travesty and it was a miscarriage of justice. And as I mentioned, they now have opened a museum. It's just outside Paris. Well, it's an adjunct to to the Zola House. There is a statue. It's uh, near where he's buried. It is in Paris. It's on the main road. But basically, most people don't notice it. Right. Okay, thank you very much, Robert Hirsch. And once again, all feedback, questions can be emailed to podcasts at jle.org.uk. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Robert Hirsch. And we'll see you next week for subject... Part two of time. We can call it the calendar, I guess. The calendar. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.